Welcome back to the Carol Connection. I am your host, Jared Carroll, here to bring you guys another great episode. I did want to take a chance to shout out my last episode, episode 59 with Corey Lopes. Really great episode. He's a sales rep at AT&T. And during that episode, we talked about his experience when he had a brain tumor back in high school and how that really affected his life going forward. And he overcame so many obstacles. It was such a great episode. And I think you guys should really check that out at thecarolconnection.simplecast.com. Also available Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening platforms. Today, this is a really actually special episode for me, guys. For numbers-wise, we're hitting episode 60. Episode 60. Like, that's so crazy. Mentally, I've kind of created this goal. I really want to hit episode 100, so I'm really on the path to getting there. I think within the next few months, not few months, I guess several months, going into next year, we should hit that number. I'll probably take some breaks here and there. Like, last week, I took a break, got another tattoo. You can check that out on my Instagram. But... For today, bring you guys another great guest, Jen Boyle. Hi, thanks for having me. This is great. Glad you could be here. You've been a great supporter of the podcast from the jump, and we did have your boyfriend Nate on. I forget the number, what number episode that was. I want to say it was 20, I want to say 8. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. You guys will have to check it out. That was a really great episode, but... For the purposes of the beginning of the podcast, introduce yourself and kind of like what you're doing currently. Sure. So um, like Jared said, I'm Jen, Jenna. Um, I currently work as a registered nurse at a little hospital in Rhode Island. Um, I work throughout the whole hospital. Um, I work on pretty much all the floors um, between behavioral health, emergency room, ICU, kind of you name it. Um, Other than that, you know, I've just been on a journey of kind of playing a lot of volleyball. I've been working out a lot. And I'm trying to improve and build relationships with other people. So um, that's kind of what I've been up to. I'm really happy to have you on this podcast. And we're going to talk a lot about um, your career later in the podcast. And kind of, I'm obviously really big on mental health. So we'll be sprinkling that throughout too. And kind of how it really affects you into your your day-to-day and your career. Uh, Early on in the podcast, I kind of talk about upbringing, family experiences, like where you grew up high school experience. So kind of talk to me a little bit about that, like your upbringing and going into your high school years. Sure. So um, I did a lot of my growing up in Central Mass over in Worcester. Um, we did move around quite a bit. I actually was um, a new kid in school every even year, my entire experience until college, um, which was kind of cool. I have friends everywhere, but also kind of tough. But um, once I got to high school, we settled down in um, Northeast Connecticut, where I finished off high school and moved off to college in Newport. So, um, you know, I have a wonderful mom. I have a wonderful stepdad-to-be, and um, my dad is great as well. Talk to me about the experience of changing schools a lot, because I did not know that. And that seems like it'd be somewhat of, like, a difficult experience to, like, go from school to school like did you have a tough time like adjusting to the different schools like as you were growing up so it really it really depended on the schools and it was one of those things where you would think it gets easier as time goes on but it really got harder you know in elementary school it's so easy to you know make new friends you go out to recess but I remember that my hardest transition was um, going to Middletown High School in Connecticut 
and um, being the 10th grader, everybody already knew each other, you were coming in new, and I was only there for a total of a month, but that entire month I don't, I don't know a single person who went there, so luckily I got to come back after that to the high school that I started at the year before, so it kind of worked out in my favor for that. Was it um, just like, look, why did you go to that school? Like, was there like a reason that you bounced between the two, or was it... Yeah, so, you know, we had a family emergency where okay, we had to okay. move out that way for about a few months, and then we were able to move back, luckily. You know, came back to Killingly, um, mm -hmm. small town, got to join the, the field hockey team, and, you know, it was just, that was definitely the toughest, because, like I said, 16-year-olds, everybody knows each other. It's it's hard to be new. <laughs> yeah, especially in high school. High school is so clicky. Like, I, I, I guess I had the privilege of staying in Seacock my entire life, mm -hmm. so, like, from my perspective, when you see the, the someone who knew coming to the school, everyone is kind of like snap your head, like, "Oh, who's that? Like, where are they from?" And like, everyone wants to know and ask questions. And so, like, I could see that being a difficult transition for you, like in high school and like working through that. And I want to talk a little bit about the sports. So you said field hockey and volleyball. Mm -hmm. Which one's your favorite? I definitely prefer playing volleyball over field hockey now. I never played volleyball in high school or anything, but um, my boyfriend's family is really into it. So the past few years, it's kind of something I've gotten myself into too. Um, shout out to my quick league, um, Super Fun Activities Club. We call it SFAC. Um, I've met a lot of great people playing there. We play every Tuesday. They play almost every night, really, but mm -hmm. it's really helped to kind of keep myself active in a fun way. I, I definitely 100% support that and like, Everyone that listens to this podcast, especially times like now, to be active, to have that, that outlet where you could get some exercise and have fun. Like, sports are everything. Like The one thing I miss the most right now, and we've done a little bit, is play flag football. Mm -hmm. That's one of my favorite things to do because, like, football was, like, everything for me growing up. And I think it's hard to play football now as you get older because it's such a team sport and you need people. But that's also the reason I've always loved the game of football is because you need others. Like, things like baseball, you could just play catch with one person, or basketball, you could shoot by yourself, or essentially something like that. Like, in volleyball, you need other people. And I love sports that bring a lot of people together. And especially when you're outside, you probably play some indoors too as well, I assume. To have that, that space to do that, and you create really great relationships with people, and I think it's super healthy, and it's great for the mental health. And, like, I always try to support people with that. I want to talk about the experiences that you've got gained by playing not only just sports in general, but field hockey in high school. Like, what was your experience with that? Um, so my experience with field hockey in high school was really good. I got to play for a whole year, which I wasn't really able to stay too involved with anything because of how often I was new. Um, I eventually left and then I ended up like working part time and things like that to help with college. But I will say that it was so nice to just get together after school with a group of people your own age. Like I said, I played for a whole year, so it kind of kept giving me something to look forward to. We would do like indoor in the winter, and then we would go back to do preseason. So it was just really nice to be around other people, especially your own age. Something to look forward to, something for that college resume, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. That, that was big. Like having Huge. some some type of like club or athlete, like athlete, I cannot speak, athletics on the res oh, resume. Col it's that not college app, the common app. app. <laughs> you could tell how um, how far away from that whole experience I am nowadays. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. I think it's been three years since I graduated college. Mm -hmm. Three years, so like twenty eighteen. It doesn't seem that long ago, but it's kind of 
three years, like one year sometimes seems like forever. It's so interesting. Uh, well, we can get into the college stuff in a little bit, but I want to talk about um, the transition from high school to college and why you elected to go to college because everyone has so many different options when we're coming out of high school and there's so many different pressures from not only family to friends to the school systems. So what was like your reason to go to college and then the major you ultimately picked? Sure. So um, when I was a freshman, I went to Worcester Tech because I was still in Massachusetts at that time. I was convinced I wanted to own a restaurant, like a cafe specifically. I was going to make little desserts for the rest of my life. But the school required me to um, try different shops or trades. And one of the trades that I went to was the Allied Health, which is essentially where you get your CNA. And once I explored that shop, I never really went back. And I spent the rest of my high school experience knowing that I wanted to go to nursing school. And as things kind of got towards the end of college, um, end of high school into college, I knew I wanted to go somewhere small, somewhere really nice, and somewhere I could get away from home. So I decided to go to Salve Regina, where I had a great transition in. I was very involved in high school. I did all sorts of clubs, even if they weren't relevant to nursing, just to kind of keep myself involved. And I think that the transition actually went very smoothly. I know that a lot of people around me struggled, but I think that since I was so new all the time growing up, that moving into college was just kind of like moving again, which, you know, really helped a lot. That makes a lot of sense, actually. And I can I can imagine that transition was fairly smooth for you. And it kind of like, in a way, was like a positive being able to move around so much because you're now as you get older, there's not such an like an attachment to a certain location almost, and like that, like I envy that because mm-hmm. like I have this somewhat attachment to this town of Seacomp that mm-hmm. like sometimes I just can't feels like I can't get away, and like I was able to when I moved away to Texas and Georgia, and I say that was the best decision I ever made was to get myself out of my hometown Mm -hmm. and for you to be able to say that you've moved to different places and gone to different schools and then to go to college I think that transition like you said was probably very smooth and like it makes sense to me because that fear of being new the fear of a new experience that being uncomfortable in a new environment that's almost like it was like you're used to that and like that's a good thing because like I think putting yourself out of your comfort zone is so fucking important. I don't think enough people do that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I know. I was moving in with people, you know, the big dorm, big freshman dorm. I was moving in with people who have never moved ever in their life, which for you may be the case as well. Mm-hmm. It was. And by now, like, I'm a professional. I know exactly how to pack, exactly how to move things in efficiently. <laughs> um, you know, and I have moved quite a bit even since college, unfortunately. But I think for now, we're settled where we are. But um, yeah, I, I guess I guess you could call me a professional by now. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's I think it's good. Like, like I said, and just being in those environments where you're uncomfortable—that's the where you mm-hmm. grow the most. Exactly. And like, as you transitioned into college for nursing, like how difficult was that program? Because I know I've had a couple different people on the podcast that have gone through and were currently in nursing school at their respective schools and I should say nursing programs at their respective schools. Um, How was that experience for you? So nursing school is hard. I trust anybody that tells you that it is hard. I was doing it while I was working. I worked pretty much full time through the entire nursing program, which they did not recommend. But sometimes, you know, you got to do what you got to do. You know, you have classes, you have clinicals, you have lab, you have reports, you have fake patients you have to chart on, you have real patients you have to chart on, 
it's a lot, but it's worth it. And, um, you know, going through my career as a nursing student, you know, I decided that once I decide to leave the bedside, I'll be a nursing professor myself. I start grad school in a few weeks to go back for nursing education. And I'm sure you've experienced it, um, Jared, on your podcast before with your nursing student guests, but they are the most passionate people <laughs> that you can work with, really. So that's kind of why I want to educate future nursing students is because they're just so passionate. Like they just want to be there, you know? I really love that because when I talk to people, and even now, since I've been doing the podcast for so long, I could really pick out when people are passionate about things and the way they say things, like the way the tone of their voices, the facial expressions, and the way you just described teaching nursing students, like the way that lit you up and the way, even like we've, we've known each other, we've been friends, so like I have this relationship with you and we talked before the podcast, but the way you just talked about that, I can tell that's something that you're really passionate about. And it's a credit to this podcast that I've been able to sit with so many different people to hear so many different experiences and to hear what people are passionate about. So when you talk about things like that and talk about passions and it's just, it lights me up because this is my passion. Talking to people is something I really do enjoy. Like, I know the people who are close to me know I talk a lot and sometimes I don't, I don't shut up, but like, it's because there's, I think there's so much to talk about. Like there's so many experiences that we could share as human beings and like anything that has to be related to passion is just, it's amazing because it lights everyone up in a different way and sharing those experiences I think are valuable, you know? I feel like especially on a podcast about mental health, there are so many things to talk about because there's, I won't say there are no wrong answers in mental health, but there are a lot of right ones which just gives people so so many venues to go, you know, so many avenues. So it makes sense. Yeah, and it just it's, it allows people, to, at least this platform I'm building, I want people to be free to express themselves in however way they want to, where you can come here and you're not going to feel judged for what you say or how you feel about yourself, where you look or whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. We're here, two humans having a conversation. Sometimes I have three guests. I mean, two guests, so it's three of us, but like... I want people to feel comfortable. Like I share a lot about myself off record as well as on record. And I do that just to show like, it's okay. This is a safe space, safe space. You can be vulnerable with me. Like I don't like to hide behind. Like I think a lot of specifically men hide behind the masculine traits, the energy, mm-hmm. like I got to be tough. I got to do this. Mm-hmm. I got to be dominant. And those traits are valuable in society. They're good. But you don't want to get wrapped up in this facade that you need to be that 24-7, the strongest person in the room, this alpha energy. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be that. Embrace your masculine energy and your feminine energy into one. And I think you'll have the best balance of a personality where you can approach things in a healthy manner. Mm-hmm. Like, expressing your emotions and, like, communicating with people. And it helps not only just, like, your job and family, but, like, your relationships as well. Mm-hmm. When you could actually, like sit with your stuff when you're like angry and you don't have to like lash out on someone we can sit with your stuff meditate appropriately analyze your situation i think that's really beneficial and tying it to the podcast and tying it to passions i think for me this is a way for me to do that and express that in a safe way and it's big props to you too for coming on here being vulnerable enough to be like hey this is me this is what i do and you know not everyone is comfortable with this and seeing you in this position, we've talked about this. We've, I think it was like, what, maybe like 
close to last summer we talked about mm-hmm. like i'd like to be a guest on i was like mental note yeah get jen on the podcast <laughs> and like i just love especially people in the nursing realm i love that stuff because you guys are some of the hardest working people that i know especially in that career you're literally helping people every day you know every day <laughs> like talk to me about your experience transitioning out of college and like was it a difficult transition does the school help you like secure like a position or is it kind of just like a free-for-all so um i guess it's kind of subjective it's kind of your experience of what you make out of it so you know going going shortly back to teaching Mm -hmm. when i was transitioning i found that very very tough in the beginning the classes the clinicals etc so um i kind of took the hat of running a mentor program so i'd pair like an upperclassman with an underclassman and they would kind of say hey this is the internship you want this is the internship you don't this is a good contact which was a really great resource for me to kind of learn about other people around me and a great resource for the underclassmen from the upper. So um, I was very involved. I ran that. I was part of like my student nursing organization. I did oodles of community service. I think I did like a good 250 hours just in the two upper years that I was there. Um, Some at a hospital, the hospital I work at now. Um, But in terms of what Salve, like what my school did for us, they went above and beyond really. So if a, if a hospital emailed Salve and said, hey, we have four open positions that we can give to new grads, go ahead and forward this to your students, we would get emails like that daily our senior mm-hmm. year. And a lot of us were even employed before we graduated. So I definitely think that finding a job was the easy part. It was kind of gaining your bearings as a new grad. You've gone from having patients who are mannequins to having four to five real patients in four short months, not even... Um, that was really the hard part. And then as soon as the class of 2019 at least got our feet solid on the ground, you know, nurses that are no longer brand new, a pandemic hit. <laughs> so it's been it's been a tough transition after college. But I think that my school really did everything they could to get us ready, if that makes sense. No, it does. And we'll dive into the p- pandemic and how that really impacted uh, your career, but I want I want you to talk about a little bit. Like you mentioned, you go from like mannequins to like real life people. Like what were, what's like the emotion around that? Because like you can prepare, you can have all the classroom and all the teachings that you want, but when you're actually in that situation for you mentally, how did you like prepare yourself for that? Because to me, that'd be like I'd be kind of terrified a little bit. It it is terrifying, and. Um, I did kind of jump around a little bit in the beginning of my career. So I started in like an emergency room for a couple months. I didn't really think that was the scene for me as a new grad. So I moved on to oncology, which is cancer patients, the complete opposite of emergency room, really. And um, I went from, you know, being a brand new grad, like we said, mannequins to real patients. But my real patients were sometimes terminally ill, sometimes having a completely healthy history. And boom, all of a sudden you've been diagnosed with leukemia young patients, old patients. And it was really hard because you don't learn how to have hard conversations when you're talking to a piece of plastic in nursing school. However, you know, like I was a waitress, I worked at Newport Creamery, all of college pretty much. So um, I'm not saying that the conversations are the same, but it definitely teaches you how to have a conversation, especially with somebody who might not be happy. And even having conversations with people who are related, somebody who is just told that they're finally cancer free. You know, those conversations aren't necessarily easy either because you want to keep them hopeful and happy while also, you know, remaining realistic, you know, yes, you're cancer free for now, but here's the follow up treatment you may need. Um, So just like having those hard conversations with people and, you know, there are things that 
pieces of plastic don't teach you either. So for example, you have a patient who just comes back from surgery, their surgeon is in another surgery, and there's no pain meds ordered. And you have to wait four hours for a pain med order while consoling your patient who's in a lot of pain. Those are just things you can't learn, you know, when you're in school. So that's actually really crazy. And I like the way that you made the comparison too of being a waitress and having those hard conversations because that is part of that that job that's not really like super talked about like service being, recovery <laughs> yeah like you got to be able to communicate with people in that aspect and that that is i think that's a, something that i've never heard someone talk about at least on the podcast like i think maybe i could i could be mentally aware of like ha- having those difficult conversations with your patients and how hard that could be especially if you're not like a conversationalist right so like Especially when you're talking about, I guess I would assume that a lot of patients will ask questions or like talk about mm-hmm. somewhat, or if they want their mind off things, they might talk about life or their passions. So like, you probably have a lot of unique conversations with a lot of patients and like, mm-hmm. has that changed, has like dealing with patients, especially in like these different environments so you're saying you dealt with people who were diagnosed with cancer and things like that. Has that somewhat changed your perspective on life since you've started doing that? Oh, Absolutely. And um, I think, you know, so currently I do work in the float pool, like I said. So I do do, like, behavioral. I do rehab, like, after the hospital if somebody's had, like, a stroke or some sort of surgery that requires um, PT. And um, I do think that it gives you a lot of perspective on allowing people to talk about what they want to talk about. So when I, especially in oncology, I work nights. um, So sometimes the doctor would go in at 4 p.m. and deliver bad news to the patient. And there are times where, you know, a nurse doesn't really get in the room for long after that until I take over at 7. And now it's 7 o'clock. I'm learning my patients for the first time, and I'm the next person that walked in the door after a patient got bad news. So, you know, it's lucky to be a nurse because you don't have to deliver necessarily bad news to patients in that sense. But you are the one who has to be the next person to see them usually, which is hard. But it has changed my perspective on life a lot and kind of, you know, especially let's let's talk about maybe like the mental health. So yeah. It's a common stigma to not want to talk to somebody about, say, like their depression, you know, if they're having um, ideas about suicide or anything like that. You know, the stigma is, oh, you don't want to talk about it with them. But, you know, the fact is there, like the patient knows they're depressed. Like you're not going to be breaking news to them that they're depressed. And sometimes they just want to have a normal conversation. And I think that, you know, it's really helped to not shy away from people who are feeling extra depressed or anything like that and just kind of finding out what you can talk about because you're not going to fix them but you might help i think that's really fucking great advice and like because it goes back to that stigma that we have like in this society is like you don't talk about depression with depressed people and i think that i think that somewhat is wrong like Mm -hmm. because you're kind of like not talking about it like is there something wrong with it Right. And there's nothing wrong with having depression or mm-hmm. having anxiety or being bipolar. Like, there isn't things wrong with that. Like, there's an illness that can be addressed and be worked through, but, like, it, the, that stigma tied to it is just, like, I've seen it in my own personal life with loved ones, and I worked at Butler Hospital for a little bit on, like, security oh, cool. details. So, like, I was able to see a lot of the units, and, like, I can, I've seen it can get very scary and very difficult for a lot of people. And, like, so that perspective, like really opened my eyes is like that is a person though like that is a human being who's just struggling mentally and most of the time people in those situations they want to talk to people mm-hmm. my, my professor for my mental health class and clinical two separate people both said the same thing like asking somebody if they're feeling suicidal or depressed is not going to make them suicidal or depressed 
And so there's no need to like, you know, kind of cover those, cover those words, cover those terms, and honestly cover those conversations because you might get valuable information on how this patient may, may cope with, you know, what they're dealing with or feel better or even just build a better relationship with them, which is what nursing and life are really all about is just building relationships with other people. A hundred percent agree. I think some of the best conversations you could have with someone, especially someone when we're talking about mental health, is those deep conversations where they could be suicidal and stuff like that because you can really hear what's on their mind and a lot of the time if you see like whether it's loved one pass away from suicide or mental illness like everyone always like i wish i reached out i wish i did this i wish Mm -hmm. i did that well we need to break that we need to start having those conversations check on your friends like send them a text i know it's corny to say everyone says Mm -hmm. it but no one does it and like that is the problem that Mm -hmm. we aren't reaching out like there's nothing wrong with just saying, hey, like a small text, like, hey, I was thinking about you today. I hope you're doing well. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Having that small dialogue. You don't have to set plans with everyone that you could say, hey, how you're doing with. But it would be nice to, like, get to that place where we're at least having more dialogue with people. And I feel like in the beginning of the pandemic, we were kind of, like... We were getting there. We were teasing it. Yeah. And then it just kind of, like, plateaued and crashed again. And, like, mm-hmm. we're back to square one. It's like... Why does it have to take for such... And this kind of goes with a lot of things. And, like, I grew up in, like, a this toxic society that we kind of live in. Like, why do we have to have this negative, mean approach? Like, so this pandemic happens. This is, like, mm-hmm. aggressive thing where it's scary. It's a lesson, really. And, yeah, it's like, why does these negative things have to happen for us to have some type of conversation or something like that? And, like, I get it. Sometimes these negative things happen to allow these conversations to be held. It would just be nice, maybe I'm just living a little bit of a fantasy world, if we could have these conversations without these negative events all the time. Exactly. I agree. You know, and I think that kind of some things that we've done to kind of normalize them is it's, like I said, it's perfectly okay to ask your friends if they're having a bad day, like, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? And even in the hospital, if you or me were to get admitted tonight with appendicitis, part of being admitted to the hospital is I'm asking you... Um, are you feeling suicidal? And we ask that usually, obviously, in the same group of questions of like, do you feel safe at home? Have you fallen recently? Like, I always kind of pair those questions together, especially with like my older adults, you know, I'm not going to ask you a few safety questions. And that's kind of something we ask every single person that comes in, which I'm kind of hoping indirectly also normalizes asking people about their mental health and asking people if they're okay, or if they feel their lives at risk. Just because, you know, if you hear it when you come to the hospital, you know, just like with routine other questions just kind of makes things feel a little more normal for them I in wish case we, they are. I wish we could get to the point, like, because when you ask someone if they're suicidal, a lot of the people are going to say no. And that is not because um, they want to say no necessarily, because they could be suicidal and say no because of the stigma behind that. Mm-hmm. Because even you look at, like, jobs and like professions a lot of professions right now will steer away from people with mental health illnesses mm-hmm. and that is a fucking shame because now you're shaming people who actively want to get help and like it becomes like this attachment to you where you might have trouble getting some jobs because you chose to get mental health help and that is like fucking wrong like that is so Agreed. wrong and <laughs> like that gets me so mad because that is like creating the stigma in it, it enhances it and it's like not okay and i think this conversation needs to be had and like the fact that we can have this and, and you're excuse me in this field so you're really aware of it like you said you have to ask these patients this so like it's a normal question for you to ask mm-hmm. and like i think you're doing a great job with that because there's not enough like people willing to talk about 
this stuff, and I, I just think it can't be talked about enough. Mm-hmm. So, like... It, it does sometimes make the little old ladies, like... What do, what do you mean? And I'm like, oh, you know what I mean, you know? <laughs> it's just like, but. I wish people could just, like, honestly, like, they could just say that stuff. Like, hey, I am suicidal. But, like, to get to that. And I also understand the other side of that is it takes so much fucking courage to mm-hmm. be like, I am struggling that much that I'm contemplating ending my life. Right. And, and I, you know. it also has a struggle, too, of, like, let me say somebody is feeling that way, but... I don't know if you're familiar at all. You might from working at Butler, but if you go to the ER and say that and you actually, you know, maybe have a plan or something like that, you're, you're kind of winning yourself a three-day at minimum hospitalization. And then people are like, oh, I really don't feel good mentally, but I can't afford three days off of work. I can't afford to have somebody watch my children, my dog, my cat. You know, I don't want so-and-so to know about it. And they talk to me every day. And if I stop texting back, they're going to know something's wrong. And it's just like... It's so hard because it's hard enough to come to terms with how you're feeling. And then it's a whole extra battle to come to terms with the affairs you have to arrange to get yourself the care that you need. I think that's super fucking well said because that is the reality of the situation Mm -hmm. when it comes to mental health. So many people struggle with that because there is so like that's like the same thought process I would have. It's like, oh, I have to get time. I have to get time out of work. I have to do this. I have to do that. To make sure everything's aligned. I might. What if I lose my job if I go in there for too long? And I like, because like, part. I think part of the sphere too is like you don't want to tell people that you're Mm -hmm. getting the help because the stigma behind is they're crazy. That's the stigma that you get slapped on by society when it's fucking not true. I think some of the bravest people and some of like. I say, I guess bravest people, and that's fine. Your phone's ringing. I, no, I, I, I just, I just, you can get it. It's, it's not, neat. It's no, still no, fine. It's okay. Because like I've had people put their, their <laughs> ring around. I actually like I was like, what is that vibrating? Like <laughs> that's live podcasting, guys. But uh, lost my train of thought for a second. Um, you were saying the stigma and the, saying the word crazy, which in the hospital we never would say to a patient. In fact, like so, I, you know, some of the medications that we use on the behavioral unit are called mm-hmm. antipsychotics. And we don't even use that word, you know, talking to a patient, because if you tell a patient you're going to give them an antipsychotic, their response is, well, I'm not psychotic, so I'm not going to take that. We just say, hey, this is something that might help, you know, your mind think a little bit better. Would you like to try it? You know, and it's just like trying to avoid using those words, you know, to make people feel like what they're feeling is wrong, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, words are very important in how we say things and Mm -hmm. like... That's why, like, even, like, I've noticed that even doing the podcast and the way I speak on certain things, like, there is power to, like, the way you say things. And, like, the tone that you say things, like, I think that is super underrated. And, like, that's why I preferably, preferably, I should say, um, like the in-person podcast, because with the tone and facial expressions, you really get to understand what people are saying. And I think you really lose that in, like handwritten or texting or Mm -hmm. online stuff like you lose that aspect of the person and the human so i can imagine that when you're talking to your patients that like the way you say things and how you say it especially with someone who's struggling mentally where for me i've definitely struggled with mental health in my life i'm a very i'm an overthinker so like Mm -hmm. my mind would if you say if you told me antipsychotic my mind is going like am i crazy it's like i'm going all these different places and it's like breathe like it's not like anything that serious this is gonna help Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people are scared too with medication in terms of mental health because like people think of 
addictive drugs and things like that. And it's like part of the reason that they're offering the medication is because of this chemical imbalance they talk about. Exactly. And I don't know if there's anything that you could add to that because I think people have this mis like interpretation of what a chemical imbalance is in the brain, like because people it's just like a, this term that people talk about mm-hmm. and like I don't know if you have any super knowledge that you could add to that that yeah. might make it more clear. Yeah, so I'm um, coming from you know my background like I've I've been diagnosed with um, fairly severe anxiety myself. I've mm-hmm. been on medication for it. Um, I think that the hardest part of being treated for anxiety is, you know, having to break it to say, like, your parents, like, hey, just so you know, my primary care doctor or my or my psychiatrist has put me on this medication and I'll be taking it. I think that's a lot of the hard part because of the stigma behind taking it. And But I think it's important, too, like, you know, it is good to try other options such as, like, working out. Like, I'm, you know, my, my volleyball, I run, um, going to the gym, you know, eating your fruits and veggies and doing different things. But not everybody can kind of fix, not everything can fix how you're feeling inside. Like, you can have the best day ever, and at the end of the day, you could be like, wow, I'm feeling pretty sad tonight. And it stinks, but there are just some imbalances that just can't be helped completely by lifestyle changes, which I think is tough for people to understand, but also, you know, sometimes necessary. And if if taking the medications and things like that isn't something that you'd want then you know it's your choice but also you know there are people who feel like they need it or do need it or even people with things like other mental health problems like psychotic features and things like that who definitely do need it to help them kind of think clearly and I think we should just be careful of not bashing other people for what they choose to do just because we think our methods work better I think that is so so well fucking said like seriously I think that (laughs) you, you put that in the perfect terms because you also added in that piece of working out, eating a healthy diet, mm-hmm. getting doing all these different things with the vitamins and stuff. Because I I try to heavily preach that because I don't because and again not that's not gonna always solve the problem for everybody. It can help. It can definitely help. But I think if you you aren't doing those things, and, it's, and I understand too when you are struggling with mental health. To get the motivation to do those things is so fucking hard. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm not ne- ne- neglecting that aspect of it, but I think sometimes if you're not even trying those things, you're not giving yourself a fair chance with some of this mm-hmm. stuff. Because I notice when I'm not working out, when I'm not eating right, when I'm not taking, like, my vitamins and drinking all my water, that's when my mind and my mindset really starts to slip mm-hmm. and things get opened up for my mind to start going into bad places. So I noticed that, and so I choose to preach that, like, when you feel sad or angry or these different emotions or anxious, maybe go for a walk, something light, then maybe go try a run, maybe Mm -hmm. do some, like, bodyweight squats or some push-ups or some sit-ups, like, small stuff, progressive stuff, like, I've had bodybuilders and fitness trainers podcasts, like, you don't have to be them, like, those type of people can really help though too on top of that mm-hmm. and if you don't know how to get into that that realm because fitness is this whole thing in itself mm-hmm. so i really think fitness and mental health really could really coexist and really have some beneficial um things if they really work together more closely than they do already mm-hmm. and i just i really appreciate that you acknowledged that aspect of yeah and i think mental health. 
I think we're toddlers by nature, and um, I don't know if you know anything about child development, but um, toddlers um, thrive very strongly on routine. And I'm not saying that if you're feeling any sort of mental illness, you should book hour by hour every day of the week. But, you know, I do feel like for me and for a lot of people I've advised this to is to just build a routine. And staying in that routine, I think, isn't the only thing that helps, but I think it's what follows it. So if you're following your routine, you know, you're eating around the same times, you're eating, you know, you're making time to drink water, you're making time to actually eat nutritious food or maybe work out or spend time with people that fuel your social battery and things like that. And I think that that routine, like I said, we're toddlers by nature. So even as adults. I think that's so true because I'm a, such a routine person. Mm-hmm. Like even my, like my career is accounting finance. It's very cyclical and like, my routine, if I'm not, if I'm off my routine, I feel off as a person. Mm-hmm. Like, I set it up where I do my work. After work, I work out. And then I'm usually kind of, like, relaxing for my day. And then I play my podcast almost every Friday. Like, and, like, I think that's why I've had success is this routine. Like, I didn't really, I didn't know that toddlers, like, really respond well to routine. That's at and least like, what I've learned and makes, what I've experienced when I was, like, you know, I was a volunteer mm-hmm. in the daycare. And that was kind of... How they got kept the toddlers at bay there. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I think excuse me, a lot of our life journey is kind of getting back to who we were as kids mm-hmm. and embracing that. And that makes a lot of sense. That routine like definitely helps people keep kind of like stay straight on, like not stay focused on tasks, like doesn't allow the mind so much to just drift away mm-hmm. and get into like sp- and start spiraling. Because I think we're, at least for me, when I get hooked by an idea, and like I've talked about that in different episodes with therapy, where therapy has really helped me, I should say, is not getting caught on my ideas and like spiraling out of control because, like I just I, I just get locked on these thoughts and like I struggle with that and like that's why I chose to go to therapy and I always try to talk openly about therapy, especially for my men out there because I don't think enough men go to therapy because okay. it's labeled as weak or. Um, you're feminine and it's it's neither or like you're strong as fuck for acknowledging that you have some issues that you need to be working with someone at a professional level and it's nice because you don't need something necessarily wrong with you to go to therapy just like people go to the gym to work out their body going to a therapist is like working out your mind mm-hmm. and i try to say that and therapy therapy is a great thing too because I remember learning just like different coping mechanisms when I was in nursing school and you know they're coping mechanisms that I use now to advise my patients as a nurse and even you know mental health patients even my medical patients and such is you know they say to give yourself a time and a block to do your thinking to do your overthinking like don't spend the whole day drifting on an idea tell yourself that once you settle down eat your dinner take your shower and then you're lying in bed is an okay time to kind of you know, process what, what went on. And I think that therapy is a good way to put that block of thinking time in somewhere in your week where it can also be professionally kind of worked through, which kind of helps with the routine and helps with keeping your mental health at bay too so you don't spend a whole day overthinking about something that could be minor a week from now. Absolutely. Like having, I went from weekly to bi-weekly to monthly and that is because of the progress I was able to mm-hmm. make in therapy where in the beginning, like I haven't, I I try to journal when I can. I don't journal every day. I don't even journal like every couple of days. Like it's here and there when I feel it. It's like, a, it's a tool that I was given, and I use it when I need it. And if I go back and look at my journaling from about a year ago when I was really struggling um, mentally and emotionally, I could see myself getting hooked by these ideas and having that tool to journal so I could now look back on those. 
is super helpful because now when I see see those thoughts, like I could recognize them. Okay, I have some triggers that I didn't notice right away, and I could be more active with those triggers. Like, hey, I'm starting to feel triggered by something emotionally. I could take my step back, and I like to meditate personally, mm-hmm. so I can go take like maybe five five ten minutes. Like I don't need to meditate for hours on end. Five ten minutes, just a couple breathing techniques, just in and out. Picturing myself in a different place, like I picture myself on this, um, I was on this trail, this, it was like fall, like the stream running through, everything's yellow, I picture myself there, like I have a video on my Snapchat, somewhere in my memories, like this exact spot, and I can just picture myself being there, not thinking about anything else, but being there, and I think that's really helped me stay present and erase a lot of those anxious feelings that come up, and I think that's really beneficial and i've learned that through therapy mm-hmm. and i'll say it a thousand times in the podcast is like please seek therapy because it's 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 really helpful for people and i just i don't i don't think enough people talk about it openly especially i feel like it's kind of like my responsibility in a sense like as a as a man who goes to therapy to tell other people like hey this is actually really really helpful like this like, is, is kind of nice <laughs> yeah this is this is nice like i can like and I'm a talker, so, like, I, I'm really good with it. I'm really open with my stuff. So, like, it's a place where I can go to someone because I definitely in the past would confide in probably too many people. And that's not super healthy. Do as you may with that. But I definitely encourage preferring going to a therapist where your information is not going to be told to many people. And you're actually going to get some value in terms of how to work through that. Right. And I think that's very, very valuable. I did want to take a turn. I want to talk a little about this COVID stuff, this pandemic, mm-hmm. and how that really impacted you and your mental health. So as, so you said you graduated 2019. Yes. So you had some experience, and then all of a sudden, boom, a pandemic. How did you kind of like handle that? And talk about like the beginning days of the pandemic, because I think a lot of people kind of sort of kind of no, we don't forget, but like it was very scary at the beginning mm-hmm. stuff, and I know especially in like the nursing field and like healthcare and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, you know, I. I won't say unfortunately, but I remember pretty much every single shift of the first three weeks of the pandemic. And um, just going back then, I did work on my oncology unit. And the first thing my boss said to me, he came up to me and he said, hey, hey, Jen, um, we're not going to be leaving masks on our precautions carts anymore because there's this virus in China. And apparently masks are just low in volume right now. We got to start conserving our masks. Just be careful. You know, if you're going into a room where you need a mask. Make sure you, you know, you get all your stuff done at once that you need to get done for the next few hours. And I was like, oh, okay. Go in the next day and I'm catching visitors stealing masks off of precautions carts that got missed. And then I go in the next day and they say, so there's a case in the U.S. of that virus from China. um, But don't worry, you work in oncology, so you won't have to worry about it. We will never expose our patients who are immunocompromised um, to a virus that seems to be this contagious. And I was like, okay, so I'm, I'm texting my family and I'm like, rest assured, like, mom, I'm not going to have to deal with this hands on. And then our patients started getting it. And then we would have to, they would come in, they would start coughing, they would have fevers, they would be really, really sick. And we'd ship them off to another unit where they had all the COVID patients. And then sometimes we just wouldn't see them again. Sometimes we would. And, um, you know, from there, the hospital had to make some, you know, dynamic changes, just um, like some movements of some things. And part of it did include um, temporarily floating some nurses to a COVID unit indefinitely to prevent the spread. Like they didn't want nurses going to the COVID unit and then coming back to the oncology unit. 
And um, so I did volunteer to go to the COVID unit. So I worked the majority of the first wave um, just with COVID patients. It seems like everybody was really, really sick. It was wearing an N95, a second mask, eye protection, a gown, hair cover, feet covers, you name it, for about 12 hours straight. For probably, I want to say it was about three to five weeks that I was put on that unit before I was brought back to my own, which of course was tough, but I think the toughest part of it was it wasn't like when things started to clear up and people could kind of do small outdoor gatherings again, like seeing their family, probably around Mother's Day is when it hit me. Couldn't go see my mom for Mother's Day. Couldn't see my best friend who it was her first Mother's Day. She was pregnant with twins. Um, and I couldn't see anybody because I was around this big scary virus for 12 hours at a time, three nights a week, seven to seven. And um, so kind of what we did for that Mother's Day was kind of luckily the end of my rotation on that unit. And um, I made a huge sign. Me and Nate went down to her house in Connecticut and we held like a Happy Mother's Day sign out from her yard, which of course <laughs> made us both really, really happy. Um, and then of course, you know, the summer, I won't say it was quite like business as usual in the hospital. You know, of course, COVID has changed everything mm -hmm. about how hospitals run, unfortunately. And sometimes, fortunately, you know, visitors could start coming back, which is honestly one of the most important things that happened during the pandemic was allowing visitors back into the hospital. A very unpopular opinion. But then the second wave. So um, by then I had transferred over to the hospital that I work at now. I was on the float pool. So, you know, it was very likely that I would get some COVID patients if I worked on the floor that held them. Um, didn't have as many as I did, obviously, working strictly on a COVID unit. But the overflow of acuity, which is, you know, how sick the patients are, was just absolutely out of this world. It was like patients were having strokes on Wednesday and were too afraid to come to the hospital until Friday. So you'd have a patient with residual from a stroke two days ago. There's not much we can do for them medically. You know, the, the best thing to do is just get them the physical therapy and other things that they need. It was just like crazy, just sick, sick people in the hospital was full absolutely full um especially like critical care beds we we're having to contemplate which patients really needed like icu level of care um they were trying to round in nurses 24 7 around the clock and um there was like there were no icu beds available like you couldn't even transfer a patient who needed to be say intubated to an icu because all of them were so far away, there'd be no way to keep them stable long enough. You know, it just wouldn't be, it wouldn't be beneficial for them. And you know, it was getting harder and harder and harder. Like I wasn't wanting to get out of bed, even on my days off. The pre-shift anxiety was bad. <laughs> the night before having like, cause you know, you get a few days off in a row cause you do the three twelves. Mm -hmm. But the night before my night back on, I was like, if you, it was just so tough. But I do remember, I don't like to be, super negative and I do remember getting in the elevator it was probably early March and I was on the elevator with my coworker, and it was the first time in three months that there was like a few open beds so if a patient came into the ER that night and needed a bed no wait there were beds and I just remember how happy that like that elevator trip was we all got out of work on time all got to clock out on time which is so rare in the nursing field and there were open beds <laughs> And that was just a great feeling, really. It's probably been really nice. Like, Sorry, I ranted a little. No, no. 
don't apologize because not enough people rant on my podcast. <laughs> I, I need people to go off. Like, I definitely have a lot of people that talk a lot and I love that because I don't shut the fuck up. So, like, <laughs> when I can actually be quiet for once, I really enjoy that. And I think, because we're not going to talk about the vaccine or anything like that, but I think it's probably been a, a lot of relief since it's come out and things are starting to get better. And, like, I can imagine the stress at work is getting lower and lower obviously more probably back to closer to normal than it's ever been in a long time and just hearing what you like because i think that that your experience right there is super valuable because not enough people know the experience that nurses have we have this overarching like thing like they're the heroes we need to support them applaud them for all the work they do but we don't necessarily know all the stress because we know that they're there with all these patients that are regular patients who are dealing with like their illnesses and diseases and then covid too on top of that you're losing people to covid on top of this stuff Mm -hmm. so watching so many people and pass away very quickly with this stuff so like that mentally i could imagine is very overwhelming and like you can't there's no there was no way to teach anybody about this stuff Mm -hmm. before you when you go into the nursing field there's they maybe they talk about pandemics possibly but like probably not it's a chapter (laughs) That's what, and like, it's crazy because like we're living in like a like a part of a pretty heavy chapter of a history book and like a textbook in the future and like right. it's so crazy to even like think about that and think of the concepts and like this is gonna forever change the way we look at the healthcare industry. Exactly, and you know I've been saying for at least a year you you really hit the nail on the head there. Like nobody wrote a book on how to deal with this, and that's kind of what I've been telling my family, telling my friends, telling my patients. Because honestly, like I can I can say a lot of blunt things to my patients at this point in time. You know, with my experience, I kind of know how things rule. But when a patient asks, "Is there any COVID on this unit?" You know, it's hard to say. Oh yeah, yeah. Don't worry about it. But there is, or oh no, no. We 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 put them away on a different unit because you know it's that's, that's just like a hard question to ask. And then additionally, in between waves, kind of end of the summer, I did pick up a job outpatient in the COVID clinic. Um, so initially, you know, the plan was to um, do like some testing and things like that. But luckily, I kind of slid into a position where I mostly do like phone calls with patients. I do referrals for the treatment that we use to kind of keep patients out of the hospital with COVID. But then on top of working with with patients, you know, who are really sick or have COVID in the hospital, I'm also calling patients and saying, hey, I know you have a family of six, but you have COVID and you can't leave your house for 10 days. I hope you have enough groceries. It's it's so it's so tough because like I said, nobody wrote a book on how to deal with all this. Yeah, no, it's hopefully and as the only thing that's going to help us from here on out is time, time. Mm -hmm to learn more to do more research to do studies like time is everything and like i i say this to everyone honestly and even like off a podcast like respect people's opinions on time because you can't it's time you can't fuck with that like there's nothing you could do to change that like we need time to appropriately look at our situations like i always got a little bit frustrated in the beginning of the pandemic when they're making these huge assumptions about what's going to be what to come like i think it's important to plan for stuff and hope for things to get better but we don't know what we don't know Mm -hmm. and like we got to be careful on how we approach this and i think obviously we're getting a lot better and i think we're moving in the right directions Mm -hmm. and we're getting closer to normal i think this summer will be a lot better than what it's been last summer and like i think we're we're definitely moving the right direction and again i encourage people 
If you want the vaccine, get the vaccine. If you don't, please wear your mask, socially distance. And even if you have the vaccine, and I'd still probably encourage mask and social distance when, when needed. I think it's just a safe precaution until we're at that stage where, I guess, herd immunity or whatever. I just want to put that out there because I think it's important for people to still follow somewhat of protocols and not just say, say fuck it and just do it. Let's, let's be respectful to people on both sides. How, how are you feeling about this summer? I'm asking you questions mm-hmm. now. How are you feeling this summer? Speaking of like all this mental health and, you know, things maybe ha- being a little more normal this summer. How do you feel about getting back out with your friends and things like that? Are you are you feeling pretty excited? Are you? Yeah, I definitely would say I'm I'm feeling pretty excited. I definitely have. I keep a small group regardless whether it's COVID or not. So like going out in huge groups and gatherings, can't say I'm probably going to do that. I never really was um, like a huge fan of that. But like. I don't want to like jump the gun on it either so like it's kind of seeing where things go but i'm definitely excited to, i think it's gonna be more normal i'm more open to seeing more people and i think it's gonna be i think it's gonna be a good summer i really I hope do so <laughs> i want to hold on it's my humidifier guys hold on i'm gonna go shut that off for a second we're gonna get to like the last point of the podcast perfect Perfect, perfect. Sorry, guys. Live podcasting. I could hear that shit ringing in my ears. And I was like, I don't want that to interrupt your um, the last part of this podcast. Cause I want to do some wrap-up stuff here. Is there anything specifically that you want to add that we haven't talked about? Not necessarily. Okay. So, uh, as you might know, the way I end all podcasts are with a specific question, which is tied to passions. So what would your advice be to someone who wants to pursue passion, their passion? Excuse me. My advice. So um, my advice to somebody who wants to pursue their passion, whether it's career, hobby, a relationship with somebody, a family, you name it, is honestly, I know this sounds so generic, but to just to just go for it. And when you go for it, you know, I think I'm not saying push everybody on your way down. You know, so I'm, I'm saying make strong relationships with the people around you. I'm saying to, um, for the people who don't believe in your passion with you, I think it's time to make some healthy boundaries. And I'm big on boundaries. I think that they're a good thing. It means that you want to keep that person in your life. Um, I don't think boundaries are a bad thing at all. Um, I think you should take the people who tell you that you can't do it and, and tell them you can um for example i did have a teacher or two in high school say oh you're gonna go to salve how are you how are you going to afford that and then i went ahead and scored myself a scholarship so i think it's just important to humbly do what you need to do to get to where you need to be um i think you should make the people that are doing what you want to do your role models because those are the people you can ask how they got there i just think you should kind of knock down any bridge you can without burning it I really like that. Across every bridge you can without burning it, better said. No, no, agreed, agreed. I think that was really great advice. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with me. And I think it definitely is going to have some impact. And I always just, I enjoy talking to you. So I definitely appreciate you, Jen. (laughs) Me too. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I'll give you guys my spiel now. If you guys like the podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, share it with your friends, share it with your family, share it with your grandma. You can check it out thecarolconnection.simplecast.com also available apple podcast spotify and all the major listening platforms so until next time guys bye